You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Venezia, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That's who you and I have become in Christ, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, I'm thinking about the priests who had to cleanse themselves before they actually entered into the temple and performed the different rites and the ceremonial rites. In the same way, we are to cleanse ourselves do everything that we do for the glory of God. The Old Testament lays out detailed records for how the temple of God was built. As Christians, it can be difficult to understand how these passages from Scripture relate to us in our modern age. Pastor Mike clears some of that up for us today as he walks us through the layout of the temple and explains how its symbolism transfers to the New Covenant. The temple priests had an extremely important and honorable responsibility. In the New Testament, we're told that we are the new royal priesthood. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of 1 Kings chapter 6 for today's edition of In My Father's House. From the vestibule, we're standing at the vestibule, remember, or the porch, and we now are about to enter the sanctuary or the first compartment, which was known as the holy place. Now, this was the largest of the sections that were a part of the actual temple, and it was according to what we have recorded here for us, the second compartment was 60 feet long. Once again, it was known as the holy place. And the inner sanctuary, or holy place, was separated from the most holy place. Now, within the holy place, you had the candlesticks, okay, notice there, which represented the nation of Israel, and how that Israel was to be a light to all other nations, and that all of the surrounding nations would see and understand the benefit of knowing and serving the God of Israel. Now, in the New Testament, isn't it interesting? Remember in the book of Revelation, where is it? In chapter 1, when John is receiving the revelation from God, and on the Lord's day, as he was worshiping God, from behind him, he hears this noise. It's likened unto a blaring trumpet. And he turns in the direction of where that sound had come from, and he sees Jesus standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. 
So in the Old Testament, the seven golden candlesticks represented the nation of Israel. But in the New Testament, the seven golden candlesticks represents the church. So in the same way, we are to be a light to the nations. So others that are around us are to see the benefits of our knowing God and that it would entice other people to want to know the God whom we serve. So there is the significance of the candlesticks. Then opposite, notice you have the table of showbread. And on that table, you had 12 loaves in two stacks, six on each side, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And in a similar way, it represented communion. And remember, Jesus referred to himself as the bread of of life. And he who eats of that bread of life will never hunger, right? And weekly, on the Sabbath day, the priest would eat of those loaves, all 12 of them, and then they would be replaced. So every Sabbath day. So that represented the provision of God for his people. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, his church. And then you have the altar of incense in between them. Notice that. So they would burn incense upon that altar. And it was symbolic of the prayers that go up before God, how that it was a sweet savor unto the, unto the Lord. And so it represented the prayers of God's people ascending unto God, God receiving those prayers. So then you have the altar of incense. So basically those are some of the vessels that we find there within the second compartment known as the holy place. And you can read some more about that in chapter 6, verses 16 through 20. So this room, the next compartment that we're about to enter into, was referred to and known as the Holy of Holies. And this consisted of a cedar board floor and walls, according to chapter 6 and verse 16. It was 30 feet in length, and it was separated from the holy place, the second compartment, by a heavy curtain or veil. In fact, in the book of 2 Chronicles, in chapter 3, in verse 14, we're given the design of that veil, what that veil looked like, and we are told, and he made the veil of blue, purple, and crimson, and fine linen, and wove cherubims into it. Now, it was the most sacred place of the temple. It was here the high priest of Israel entered once a year, to make atonement for the sins of the people. Presently today, that day is known as and referred to as Yom Kippur. So the high priest, only once a year, would go into the holy place and then go through the veil into the holy of holies and stand before the Ark of the Covenant and make a sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. Now, just a little bit of trivia about this. This is, this is kind of interesting. When the high priest went into the holy place once a year, before he went in, they would actually tie these bells upon his garments, and then they tied a rope around him so that when he offered that sacrifice unto the Lord only once a year on the Day of Atonement, if it was not acceptable unto the Lord the high priest would actually be struck dead by God himself. So the idea with the bells that were sewed onto his garment, you know, while he was there in the Holy of Holies, you know, he'd be moving around and you could hear the jingle of the bells and stuff. So the people would be in great anticipation to see whether or not 
the sacrifice for the nation would be accepted by the Lord. So while there was noise of the bells being made, you know, there was still hope that God was going to receive the offering. But if they didn't hear the sound of the bells, they would then come to the conclusion that the offering wasn't accepted by the Lord, and God had struck the high priest dead, and so because of the fact that they had the rope around his waist, they would pull him from out under the curtain. Now, I don't know if any of us would have wanted to be a high priest back then in those days, right? So it was was a pretty serious occupation. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that. And inside the most holy place were two cherubim, and uh, according to chapter 6, in verses 23 through 28, these winged creatures with human faces on either side of where the Ark of the Covenant would eventually be placed. And we have the record of the Ark of the Covenant being placed there within the temple in chapter 8, in verses 4 through 9. And their outstretched wings stretched 15 feet upwards there in the third cubicle known as the Holy of Holies. Okay, now, let's make our way back to the vestibule for a moment, the porch. Okay, so we've now gone from the Holy of Holies back through the holy place, and now once again we're standing on the vestibule, okay, or the porch of the, the temple. So we've made our way back to that cubicle, and we're standing there, and we're looking out towards the courtyard, and we're struck by the sea of cast bronze. So there, that huge vessel, many people just refer to it as a bathtub, the bathtub of brass, its dimensions, it was 15 feet in diameter, it was seven and a half feet in height, it was 45 feet in circumference, and it was capable of holding 16,000 gallons of water. And such a large reservoir required a very solid foundation. And this was provided by 12 bronze bolts, sets of three facing in each direction with their hindquarters towards the center, according to chapter 7 in verse 25. Now also visible in the courtyard are the ten layers of bronze, according to chapter 7, verses 38 and 39, five of which were placed on the north side of the sea, or the bathtub, if you will, and five on the south. And these lavers rested on carts or trolleys, according to chapter 7, verses 27 through 37. Now, these were basins containing, each one of them, 230 gallons of water, and this was used to wash animals for the sacrifice. And by the way, so this is what they would, you know, the, the sacrifices that were to be offered to God before they were offered, you know, on the altar, they had to be cleansed, they had to be washed. It was a part of the ceremonial law. You know, I forgot to mention, I'm sorry, the priests actually had to cleanse themselves before they went in for the service there within the temple. So what they would do at the bath, if you would, of bronze, they would wash themselves, they would cleanse themselves, they would go through these rites of purification. So that's what that bath was all about. It served the priests, whereas these labors served to cleanse and wash the animals that were used in the sacrifices and the, the many different sacrifices that were being offered unto the Lord. Okay? 
So those were the labors. And there were five on each side. So there, there were ten in all. Okay, so there you have it. Our attempt to visualize the temple that Solomon built. How did I do? Okay, everybody's with me? Okay, so we, I fumbled through it as best as I could. Now remember, and this is the most important part of this message. Remember, I suggested to you that this temple is a type of the New Testament church. And in its construction, this ornate building for God, what does it tell us about the church today? The way the church should look. The way the church should function. Well, there's a couple of things that I want to draw your attention to. First of all, this temple speaks of God's glory. You know, think about you know, how ornate it was, overlaid with gold and brass and the cedar planks and everything. It speaks of God's glory. Everything about it, it's glimmering gold, it's shining bronze, it testifies to the glory of God for whom it was built. And so, if this temple shouted glory, how much more should the lives of Christians who are his living temple and make up his church? Once again, let me give you another cross-reference. 1 Corinthians in chapter 6, in verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so, listen, in another text of Scripture, in that same book of Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, in verse 31, Paul the Apostle tells us there, do all to the glory of God. In other words, here's the practical application of this, God must be a part of each equation in every choice that we make. Make sure that God is a part of that equation, you know, in the choices that we make, everything that we put our hand to. Make sure that we do all for the glory of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 9, there we are told, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That's who you and I have become in Christ. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, I'm thinking about the priests who had to cleanse themselves before they actually entered into the temple and performed the different rites and the ceremonial rites. In the same way, we are to cleanse ourselves, do everything that we do for the glory of God. Every choice that we make, you know, everything that we do, we make sure that there's nothing inconsistent you know, in our lives that would bring discredit to our Lord. So the church is to reflect the glory of God. Also, another thing that I want to draw your attention to, the similarities between the, the temple and the New Testament church, also the glorious God whom the temple honored is also a holy God. And, and you know, I, I think that We've kind of lost that sense of the holiness of God. And I understand that there are many churches today that really don't emphasize the holiness of God and God's demand that his people live a holy life. You know, there's a lot of preaching 
that goes on within New Testament churches today that exclude that topic, that don't make those demands of the people who attend those churches. So listen, the very fact that the sanctuary was called the holy place, the inner sanctuary was called the holy of holies, indicates God's holiness. The fact that the high priest wore a plate with these words inscribed upon it, and it's recorded for us in the book of Exodus in chapter 28 in verse 36, holiness to the Lord. So it indicates the same. The heavy curtain, as I mentioned before, the veil, I, I, I don't know if I mentioned that, we were going to come back to that, hanging there between the first and second cubicle, between the holy place and the most holy place, gave silent testimony to the holiness of God. You see, God is so holy that he cannot be approached by sinful men apart from an atonement being made for our sins. And you know, you know isn't it interesting that you know, in the final few moments of Christ's life, before he dismissed his spirit, and uh, he cried out, you know, my father, God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then there, there was darkness that covered the entire earth, and there was that great earthquake, the result of which was, what happened? The veil in the temple was rent in two. What was the significance of that? Now we have access through what Christ did for us on the cross, whereby we now have access before God. In the book of Hebrews, we're told we now have access to him. You know, we can come boldly before the throne of grace in time of need. How? Through our high priest, who doesn't have to go back into the temple only once a year and offer that sacrifice for the sins of his people. Once and for all, he offered that sacrifice, we are told in the book of Hebrews. So listen, the church of Christ today, by her holiness of life, is to give testimony to the holiness of her God. Don't ever forget that. We need to set that as a high premium and priority within our life's experience. Everything that we do, not only to honor God, to bring glory unto God, but also live our lives to testify that we walk with and serve a holy God, even as his people are and must be holy. You know, Peter called us to holiness in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Verse 16, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And so may God help us in these days to live a pure and holy life. Listen, this is no easy thing, right? There are so many opportunities and occasions to sin. We're being bombarded, you know, by all of these different opportunities, you know, to sin. We're being influenced by the world to sin. But we need to live that pure and holy life in an impure and unholy age. Now, the third and final thing that I want to draw your attention to, the similarities between the temple and the New Testament church. Lastly, the temple portrays Christ. And it is designed by God to portray in advance his redeeming work. Let's go to the book of Hebrews for a moment in chapter 9, verses 12 and 24. Jesus, when he entered into the Holy of Holies, if you would, in heaven, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, 
Remember now, what is recorded for us you know, in the Bible is just a picture of what actually is constructed within heaven. And this is that, the place where we enter in before the very presence of God. And so Jesus stood before God and he offered himself as a sacrifice. How? Through his own blood. Not by the blood of goats and calves. That was a part of the Old Testament. Under the new dispensation, you see, Jesus, our high priest, offered that sacrifice once and for all. But with his own blood, he entered the most holy place there in heaven, once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then also notice in verse 24, as another cross-reference, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, you know, which Solomon built, which are copies of the true in heaven, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, here's the message for our modern day church today. As Solomon's temple testified to Christ, so the church is called to give testimony to Jesus Christ. You know, I hope people, you know, in our sphere of influence aren't coming to the wrong conclusions about who Christ is or the way Christ lived his life. I hope we're a great and accurate representation of who Jesus is. So that's the message for our modern day church today. And we ought to always be in mind of this truth. As Solomon's temple testified to Christ, so the church is called to give testimony to Jesus as well. This is our constant and unceasing obligation, our high, exhilarating privilege and solemn duty. But unfortunately, I think, there is a lot of other things and less and little of Christ in the church today. You know, most of the church and their energy is taken up by managing finances, building projects, self-esteem, getting him to do for us what we want him to do. Listen, may our desire of our hearts be like those Greeks who came to worship. It's recorded for us in John's Gospel in chapter 12 in verses 20 and 21. They came to the disciples and they asked this question, we've come to see Jesus. Show us Jesus. That needs to be our desire. And so anyway... These are the three things that we take away from, from the temple building. You know, we want to give our lives in such a way that in everything that we do, we glorify the Lord. We live that life of holiness. And everything that we do, everything that we touch, everything that we say, every word that comes out of our mouth, every action that we take testifies to who Jesus is. In my Father's house there's a place for me in my Father's house, where I long to be. You've been listening to In My Father's House with Pastor Mike Finizio. Pastor Mike has been making his way through the book of 1 Kings, and we've been talking about the building of the temple. The long, detailed descriptions can get overwhelming, but it has a lot to do with us today. If you think about it, back then the temple was where God's Spirit rested, but now His Spirit rests inside of each one of us. 
So when you see a description of the hundreds of decorative pomegranates, think about how your temple is decorated. Is it overflowing with the fruits of the Spirit? Pastor Mike comes to us from Harvest Christian Fellowship in Manhattan, and he would love to see you there in person. It's not hard to find. There is easy access from Port Authority on 42nd and Penn Station on 34th in Midtown Manhattan. You can find service times on our website, harvestnyc.org. Once again, that website is harvestnyc.org. If you can't make it in person, you can always catch up with us online as we live stream our services on Sundays and Thursdays. We'd love to connect with you on Facebook or Instagram as well. Speaking of connecting, are you looking for something to help you connect in your daily devotional time with God? Subscribe to our podcast. It's sure to spark some great discussions with the Lord. Well, we're so glad that you decided to spend your time here with us today. But all good things must come to an end, and we're running out of time. We'll be back, though. Come meet us here again in my Father's house. <laughs>